Okay, so part three of our series on fundamentals of Kabbalah. This is the encoded universe. I'm going to talk about the entire universe and the code, the mathematical code that is in this universe everywhere, in us, in everything around us. So what we're going to look at is why our universe is so mathematical. And then we're going to look at why Judaism is so mathematical and the Torah is so mathematical and go through a, diff a bunch of different examples of Torah numbers. And then we want to connect it to Purim. So I specifically wanted to do this before Purim because Purim is very mystical, very, very mystical. And a lot of gematria, a lot of numerology associated with Purim. So that's the plan. We live in a mathematical universe. So I don't know if you know this, but you probably do. Everything in, universe, in the universe reduces to math. And there's no reason why it should be that way. This is like a big problem. This is one of the big questions in the philosophy of science. One of the big philosophical questions. Why is our universe so mathematical? We can define everything mathematically. So some famous numbers. Anybody know what this is? What this is showing? It's a little swirl. So that's the Fibonacci sequence, yep. the, gold, yeah, the golden ratio. So we find, you know, it's like, it goes like one, one, two, three, five, eight. It's like, there's this ratio, uh, it's called the Fibonacci sequence, very famous. Uh, Fibonacci himself was actually uh, inspired by a rabbi, believe it or not. There's a whole story behind that. Uh, this number, we find all over nature, in biology, in the snails, uh, in sh shells of snails, in flowers, in our DNA, this particular sequence pattern of numbers. You've all seen this diagram, uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. So he drew that based on this golden ratio as well. It's like the perfect, perfectly proportional person where the ratio of like the hand to the forearm to the whole arm, the foot, to the leg, and so on, the head, to the body, all follows, or supposed to follow, approximately, this golden ratio. So it's in our biology. It's in the whole universe. Everything in the universe reduces to numbers, right? Like I teach chemistry, and by the time you get to grade 11, grade 12 chemistry, it's basically all math. We define everything mathematically. Like you have a chemical reaction, we can... We can calculate down to the atom, right? down to the molecule, exactly how many atoms there are, how much energy they are absorbing, how fast it is going. Everything is just math in physics and whatever. You can define everything mathematically. And why is that? Why is our universe so mathematical? We take it for granted. It shouldn't necessarily be that way. Right? Like, who's to say, why, why is it like that? Why should it be so mathematical? There's a good book. It's one of my favorite books. Uh, you can see that it's called just six numbers I like this book so it goes through just six numbers as the title suggests six numbers that kind of define our universe they're not the only six there are many constants these are like six numbers that define our universe that if they were even a little bit different the universe wouldn't exist but we have these numbers we can we've discovered them we can define them we can calculate with them so everything is mathematical the whole universe is mathematical why is that that's the big question. 
Does it imply a designer or something else? Why is this universe so fine-tuned? Say so it's a fine-tuned universe. And one of these constants is the fine structure constant. Many consider it the most important number in all of physics in the whole universe. In, in brief, it basically represents this, the interaction between electrons and photons. You can say that maybe we can say between matter and light. It's a very, very important number. It gives rise to everything. If we go back to the origins of the universe, where everything came from, big burst of energy, light, radiation, condensing into matter. What gives rise to matter? Uh, there's a book about it, also a good book. The book is called 137, Jung, Pauli, and the Pursuit of Scientific Obsession. Maybe I'll talk a little bit more about that later. This number, this enigmatic number, 137. And in this book, I'm just quoting from the book, it says that almost all carbon and oxygen would be destroyed in every star in the universe and life on our planet would not exist if it wasn't for the spine structure constant. If the fine structure constant was just a little bit different, if it wasn't 137, let's say it was 139 or something, one over 139, then nothing really would exist. This universe wouldn't exist. Matter wouldn't be able to hold itself together. The fine structure constant was one of the primal numbers that bound all existence together. Richard Feynman, all heard of Richard Feynman, famous physicist, Jewish physicist. So he said that this number 137 is one of the greatest damn mysteries of physics, a magic number that comes to us with no understanding. He, he even said, once that any good physicist should have this number up on their wall and think about it all the time. So he said, the fine structure constant, the most important. It's such a nice number that it doesn't even have units. When you plug all these things in, all the units cancel out and you just have one over 137. You just say one, 137. Why am I talking about this number? What's 137? Who knows what's 137? So in science, 137 represents all the mysteries of the universe, as Richard Feynman said. And in Judaism, 137 is actually the gematria of Kabbalah. Okay. Kuf is 100, which we're going to get to. I'll put up a chart. Bet is 2. Lamed is, is 30. Hay is 5. So Kabbalah, which represents all the mysteries of Judaism, the mysteries of the universe according to Judaism, is also 137. Coincidence? Maybe? No, probably not. Unlikely. So in both in science and in Judaism, you have this number that kind of defines all the mysteries of the universe, all of creation. And it's the same number, which is really spectacular. So here's a chart of the gematrias. And in the same way that the universe is mathematical, the Torah is also mathematical. So if you've never, uh, if you haven't had much practice with gematria, so it goes from Aleph is one, it's the first letter of the alphabet, and then Bet is two, and Gimel is three, and so on. 
until you get to 10. And then after 10, you don't need 11, you just keep going next, you go 20. So Yud is 10 and then Kaf is 20 till 90. And then Kuf is 100 and then it goes so and so on. Sorry, I think uh, yeah. I'm missing zero. There's no zero in Gematria, no zero. Because there is no zero. There's, no, there's never nothing, there's always something. <laughs> so zero is good for, in, for calculus and stuff like that. But in Gematria, we don't need zero. So we go from one to 400. Um, really, there's space here for five more in the chart. If you notice five numbers missing, uh, anybody knows what goes over there? What's missing? So you have five letters in Hebrew that have a different symbol when they are at the end of the word, right? So you have a kaf sofit and a mem sofit and a nun sofit and a pay sofit and a tzadi sofit. Good, Mike got it in the chat, the Sophiot letters, the Sophit letters. So uh, in many versions of, you, you can also, so like when you have a mem, mem is 40, for example, but if mem appears at the end of a word, then it can also, it can be both 40, it is 40, but it can also be 600. So it goes, the kaf sofit is 500, the mem sofit is 600, the nun sofit is 700, uh, pay sofit is 800, and sadi sofit is 900. So that's how the chart fills itself. So when you have a mem or a nun or a pei, either one of these five letters, there's actually a double meaning. And it can be both 40 or 600. And after you get to 900, what follows 900? What should naturally follow 900? 1,000, right? And what's 1,000? A thousand is going back here because the first letter of Hebrew is Aleph. Aleph means a thousand, right? Aleph, Aleph is Aleph, Aleph. Aleph means a thousand. So you actually have a complete cycle of the numbers from one to a thousand. So Aleph is both one and a thousand. The, the Gemara, the Talmud says, the first, uh, sorry, that the first Rishonim, the first sages, the earliest sages, we had a class not long ago, if you remember about the history of the Jewish sages and the rabbis. So the earliest sages, before they were even called rabbis, they were called Sofrim. They were called literally, you can say scribes or counters because they would count every letter in the Torah. They were like mathematicians. They were Torah mathematicians. So thousands of years ago, the earliest Jewish sages, that's what they spent their time doing. They would look into the math, the math of the Torah. And what did they discover? Some very famous uh, things in the Torah. So if you look in the Torah and you take the middle letter of the Torah, the Torah has 304,805 letters. The middle letter of the Torah is a Vav. And if you look in the Torah, you know, sometimes we write Torah letters, we write them big 
bigger than normal and sometimes you write them really small and it has meaning there's a reason why sometimes you write numbers big and sometimes you write them small so that vav in the word gachon in vaikra we write big so the middle letter of the torah in torah scrolls is always written very large it's the middle letter of the torah and then darash darash chetzian shel tevot so darash darosh is these two words it's the same word dalad reishin darash darosh chetzian shel tevot it's the middle of all the words of the torah the torah has an equal number of uh, an even number of words and the two middle words in the torah are actually the same word see that it's a beautiful thing it's like a mirror you put a line in the middle of all the words of the torah and it's the same word on opposite sides of the line and uh, uh i think i said that wrong uh, no i said it right so the word veidgalach, and he shall shave, is the middle of all the psukim, of all the verses in the Torah. So the Torah has 5,845 verses, I believe. So the middle, again, it's an odd number, and the middle verse in the Torah has the word veidgalach. It's a fav famous word because here too, the gimel is written large. So there's a lot of meaning to why certain letters in the Torah are written large, some letters are written small. So there's a large Vav in Vaikra, that's the middle of all the letters of the Torah. And there's a large Gimel, that's the middle of the Torah in terms of verses. And the Rosh Darash is the middle in terms of the um, words. So they would count these things and they would discover all these mathematical patterns in the Torah. And the Sofrim originally, they were called Sofrim. In, in Hebrew, just note how uh, Sofer can mean a scribe. Sefer is a scroll or a book, but it's also the same root as Mispar, which is a number. And in part one, we were talking about the Sfirot, right? The Sfirot are these divine energies, 10 divine energies that permeate the universe. So it's the same root. The Sfira is also can also mean counting. Yeah. So there's some that say that the Sfirot actually correspond to the basic digits that make up all the other letters. So all the digits from zero to nine, through which, so to go back to zero, Augusto, you get zero over there. So you have all the digits from zero to nine that make up all the other letters. So they correspond to the 10 Sfirot. So far, so good. Okay, so let's do an example, a very recent example, because we were just reading about uh, the shekel, and before Purim, there's a custom to give a machatzita shekel, right? half a shekel, because that's what they used to do in biblical times. They would donate half a shekel to the temple. So the Torah says, So rich people don't give more, and poor people don't give less. Everybody get or don't, yeah, everybody gives half a, a shekel, machatzita shekel. Uh, why? Because that the shekel will atone for your soul. The shekel is like a replacement for your soul. And mathematically, the gematry of shekel and nefesh is the same. So if you add it up, shin, kuf, lamed, so shin is 300, kuf is 100, lamed is 30, that's 430. Nefesh, nun is 50, pay is 80, shin is 300, also 430. So the Torah says that the shekel like stand, could, 
takes the place of your soul. And mathematically as well, the word shekel actually can substitute nefesh mathematically, 430, 430. Of course, the reason for this is that we're not allowed to count Jews, not allowed to count people. You're not supposed to count people because people are not numbers. People are valuable and have meaning and they're important and they have names. They're not numbers. I remember in university, you always, you always feel like a number when you have like 600 people in your class and you get a test and you don't even have, you don't even have to write your name. You just bubble in your student number. You know, experience this. Like you feel like a number, right? You go to wherever to get a new health card or a new driver's license. Like it's all about what is your number. You are a number. Our society today tracks us numerically, but the Torah says don't do that. Don't turn people into numbers because people have meaning. People are valuable. They're not, you're not just a number. So the Torah says you don't count people. We don't want to count. But there's other reasons why we don't do it. So you're not allowed to take a census by counting people directly. If you want to count people, you give everybody gives something to substitute. And then you count those things. So everybody gives a chetzi shekel or whatever, or something else. Everybody gives a, a pencil and then you count that. And you know how many people you have. There's a deeper meaning behind why shekel and nefesh go together. The relationship between your money, shekel, and your soul, nefesh. Very deep relationship between your money and your soul. Why is there such a deep connection between them? Because the way you get money is by exerting your soul. Your soul is what gives you the ability to live and work and you go and you work and you earn your money so it's like your soul is in your money in a way you've exerted your soul to make money so when you give your money away it's almost like giving away a part of your soul because you worked hard for it yeah. that's actually why famous thing our sages say, that when a person gives to charity, that could like change their faith. It could save them even from death. Giving to charity is so important, so fundamental to Judaism that you have to always, you give to charity, it could save you even from death. How does it work? Because in heaven, let's say the heavenly court has decided for whatever reason that a person's time has come and they need to die for whatever, usually for some sin. So they decree, God forbid, death upon this person. And then the person gives money to charity. And when he does that, it's like that person gave a part of his soul to charity. So in heaven, they say, okay, he already gave up a part of his soul. And they cancel the decree. That's the this idea behind Because that person is voluntarily as if giving up a part of their soul. It doesn't have to be to the extreme of death. It could be anything that it was decreed upon that person that their soul should suffer something, some kind of punishment. And then that person gives up, gives money to charity, voluntarily gives away money, not like buying stuff for yourself, but voluntarily giving away your money to somebody else. It's like voluntarily giving away a part of your soul. So that nullifies the decree. There's a very deep connection between money and your soul. There's a scientific analogy to that that we also talked about before, right? that when you work, you are putting your energy into something. Like if you are creating something, 
where's the energy coming? Like you're, you are converting your body's energy and putting it into that thing that you are making. If you are creating whatever it is that you're creating, pottery, I don't know, you're drawing a painting, you are putting energy into that thing. So it has, even scientifically speaking, you remember your high school physics, right? there's all this conversion of energy going on, potential energy into kinetic energy, thermal energy, like all this stuff, it's all energy at the end. The whole universe is just energy changing forms. So even scientifically speaking, when you do work, you are exerting energy and you're putting energy into other things. You're transferring energy from yourself into other things. Same thing spiritually. So that's why there's this connection between shekel and nefesh, because your work is deep, deeply connected to your soul. 430. Now, a lot of people today criticize numerology and they say it's just meaningless. It's just coincidence. Doesn't mean anything. Right. You can find whatever you want in it. It is true that some people abuse it because they don't follow the rules. There are very strict rules to Gematria and it could be abused, but it is not meaningless and coincidental. It's like saying that all the math that we do describing the universe is meaningless and coincidental. It's not meaningless and coincidental. It's, there's a mathematical structure to it. And it does have meaning and you can actually use Gematria to prove that gematria is not meaningless. So the Balaturim, one of the great commentators of the Torah from the 13th century, his commentary on the Torah is very mathematical. It's lots of gematria. It's very fun. If you like numerology, you should read his commentary on the Torah. And so he points out, there's a verse in the Torah, says, which means it's not an empty matter for you. And the Balaturim comments that the gematria of this passage of this particular set of words that this is not an empty matter equals the word gematriot meaning that gematriot are not an empty thing for you don't think they are empty right it's very easy to criticize and say ah it's meaningless it's just a coincidence it doesn't mean anything so but the torah itself is saying you know is gematriot so don't think that this is an empty meaningless thing it has meaning. So let's look at a few examples. And then we're going to look at Purim examples. So when uh, Yaakov Avinu, Jacob, before he passes away, he calls his children to bless them. But before that, he calls his grandchildren. So specifically through Joseph, Yosef. He calls Yosef and he says, I'm going to die. And I want to bless you before. And he wants to give yourself a special blessing. And then he says, that your two children that were born to you in Egypt, Joseph's children. So Jacob is saying that I'm going to elevate these two children of yours, my grandchildren, to the level of my own children. They're going to be like my own children. So he says, that's Joseph's children. Keruven and Shimon are going to be to me like my own two children, Reuven and Shimon. So just a, re some, just a reminder that Reuven was Jacob's firstborn and Shimon was the secondborn. So what Yaakov said is, I'm going to make Ephraim and Menasheh like my own children, Reuven and Shimon. And they are counted like their own tribes, right? When we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, we split Yosef into two. And so it becomes like, then you have 12, 
There's also Levi, like when Levi doesn't count because it's a priestly tribe, we split Yosef into two. So that's a very unique thing. And then Yaakov goes on to say how Ephraim and Menashe are not just equal to Uven and Shimon, but they will supersede them as we continue reading throughout through the rest of the blessing. Because later on, when he actually goes to bless Uven and Shimon, he says that Reuven was supposed to be the firstborn, but now he won't be. He lost his firstborn. And Shimon does not get any blessing. So Reuven and Shimon actually lost their blessing. They were replaced by Ephraim and Menashe. So what you find is Reuven being the firstborn, he was supposed to get a double portion. And in Jewish law, in Torah law, the elder gets a double portion of the inheritance. So that's what Reuven was supposed to get a double portion. Did he? No, he didn't. Who, who ended up getting the double portion? Yosef got a double portion through his sons, but more specifically, Menashe got two portions. Menashe was the only tribe that got two plots of land in Israel, one east of the Jordan and one west of the Jordan River. So Menashe got two chunks of land. And Reuven, as the firstborn, should have been the king. He should, the royal dynasty should have come from him, but he lost that too. Who got the dynasty? It split in two. It was supposed to be one, but it split in two. So there were two dynasties. In the south, it was the Davidic dynasty and Yehuda. Yehuda got one dynasty. And in the north, it was Ephraim. It's a, so the kings of the north were from the tribe of Ephraim, all of them, descendants of Yerovam. And in the south, they were all descendants of David. So what was supposed to be Reuven and Shimon, Shimon got no land, by the way. Shimon was totally lost his blessing. He only got some cities, but he never got a continuous chunk of territory. So what Reuven and Shimon were supposed to have went to Ephraim and Menashe. So Yaakov said they're equal, but even more equal than my sons. They're going to be one above. So if you take the gematrias of these two, of Ephraim and Menashe and Reuven and Shimon, what do you get? And do it really fast if you have a calculator. But Ruven and Shimon are 725, and if I'm going to share 726, because the idea is that what Yaakov did with this special blessing for these two is that he set them above his own first two. The connection. And to this day, if we bless Friday, the Friday evening blessing that we we give to sons is that we bless them to be like Ephraim and Menashe because they got a special blessing. There's many reasons why we do it. But one of them is because they received a special blessing on top of everybody else. And because they were friendly, because they were brothers that actually loved each other, had no issues between them. And because they lived in Egypt and didn't assimilate. The other brothers grew up in Israel. And these brothers grew up in Egypt. So there's many reasons why we give this, this blessing and many other reasons. So that's that one. This one's a little more perhaps interesting for us today. So this is from Genesis Bereshit, right at the beginning about the serpent, the primordial serpent, Nachash, in the Garden of Eden. He was the most cunning of all the creations in the garden. And of course, he causes Adam and Eve to eat from the forbidden fruit and to be expelled from the Garden of Eden. The Nachash caused that. The Nachash caused evil to come into the world and Adam and Eve and humanity to be expelled from the garden. Keep in mind, by the way, that it wasn't a snake. 
like we're used to seeing like Western artworks with the snake curled up on a tree, tempting Eve, you know, we've all seen those images. The punishment afterwards was that God turned that creature into a snake. He didn't start off as a snake, right? So when he showed up, he was an angel with human form. He was not a snake at the beginning. The punishment is that God said, now you're going to be on your gachon. We said the word gachon before. It's all connected. Gachon means on your belly. So you're going to go on your belly. And he detached his arms and turned, turned him as punishment into a snake. He didn't start off as a snake. He started off in human form. So the Nahash is what caused Adam and Eve to come out of the garden, what caused humanity to come out of the garden and to be immersed in like an evil reality. And the antidote for that is Mashiach. Right? We say that Mashiach is going to come. Mashiach is going to defeat that snake, the primordial serpent, defeat evil and bring humanity back into the Garden of Eden. So fittingly, their numerical values are equivalent. Nahash, Nun, Chet, Shin is 358, and Mashiach is 358. Because they neutralize the Mashiach's job is to neutralize the Nahash. I put this picture here. Anybody guess what this picture has to do with all of this? Let's start with what is this a picture of? This is a picture of the constellations in the sky. And in the middle here, you see this figure. It's the constellation Serpentarius. And it's a man grasping a snake. So in English, it's sometimes called the snake bearer constellation. It's a man grasping a snake. In Kabbalah, that's very, very deep stuff. It's very hard to find the source. I've seen it, I think, in one place, one or two places. This is the constellation of Mashiach because it represents the person who wrestles with the snake and defeats the snake. Okay. What constellation is that? It's called Serpentarius. In Greek, it's called Ophiuchus. In Latin, Roman, it's called Serpentarius. In English, it's called the snake bear. Now, why is this important? Because um, there's something called the axial precession of the constellations. The Earth's axis shifts. You know, we have a 23.5 degree tilt, right? The Earth spins on a tilt, on an axis. But that axis changes. And it makes like a bit of a rotation every 26,000 years. That's called the axial precession. 26 is not a coincidence because God's name is 26. We've mentioned that before. But Earth has this 26,000 year cycle. So it's called the axial precession. And so the constellations that we see in the sky will shift slightly over 26,000 years. So what happens is each constellation of the zodiac, there's 88 constellations total, but 12 of them are the key constellations that are in the zodiac that we always see. And those are set to dominate for 2000 years. Okay. So the past 2000 years, 
was dominated by Pisces. Pisces. And before that was Aries. So it was the age of Aries and then the age of Pisces. And now we're heading to the famous age of Aquarius. You hear that a lot in like new age philosophy, the age of Aquarius, right? This is like the messianic era is called the age of Aquarius. And there is meaning to that in Kabbalah as well, that we're heading towards the age of Aquarius. But as the constellations shift, we start to see things that we haven't seen for a while, or they become more clear, more pronounced in the sky. And now as we are shifting, Serpentarius is coming, is, uh, is becoming more pronounced again. And uh, I don't know if you remember this, but a few years ago, there was a big thing in the news. It was all over the news for like a day that your zodiac sign may have changed. Does anybody remember this? Because they were saying how Serpentarius is back. Now there's a 13th zodiac. I don't know if anybody remembers this, but there is a 13th yeah. zodiac. Hmm? Yeah. So there is a, a 13th zodiac sign, but we've always had it. Right. For the for the like general world, that was big news. Everybody was talking about it for like a day that your zodiac sign may have changed. Because Serpentarius is coming back because of the way the earth is shifting. But we've always had it because in Judaism, we have each we have 12 months and each month corresponds to one zodiac sign. But in Judaism, we actually have 13 months. Right. So Adar Bet. We've always had a Darbet as Serpentarius, as the month of Serpentarius. So we've had it all along. What, what this all means is that we're actually getting this constellation of Mashiach is coming into view again. It's always been in view, but it's coming into more force again. So I think that's another sign uh, that we are coming closer to a messianic age. And it's not a coincidence, like I said, that it's 26,000 years for the procession, because you find the number 26 everywhere, because 26 is God's name, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, Yud is 10, Hey is 5, Vav is 6, Hey is 5, is 26. So you'll find 26 everywhere in the universe, like God left his fingerprints all over creation. So iron, I put iron here, remember your periodic table? Iron is element number 26, and there are a lot of elements on the periodic table, uh, 118. But iron is the most important one because, well, I shouldn't say most important. They're all important. But why is iron important? Because it's the most stable atom in the universe. Iron is the most abundant metal in the universe. So it's interesting that the creator of the universe made sure that the most abundant metal in the universe is the one that has his number on it, element number 26, has 26 protons, right? Which gives rise to the most stable possible nucleus, most stable atom. And isn't it also the element that gives the blood the color red? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's why blood is red. That's why Mars is red. That's why your blood is red. It's the element that carries oxygen that keeps you alive. Right? The thing that binds oxygen in your body is iron. Thank you for that. You couldn't breathe without it. So it's iron coursing through your veins and arteries that actually keeps you alive, that carries the oxygen throughout your body. So oh, then God, wouldn't that know. also be related to the name of Adam? Yes, totally. There's this whole thing with blood that we were still talking about at the beginning, that Adam 
is the first man is Aleph Dam, right? Aleph is, represents God, which we're going to get to in a moment. And Dam is blood. So man is the blood and the soul that infuses the blood from God. Aleph Dam, Adam. Absolutely. And I also put a picture. So just like a few examples of this 26 of godliness, his fingerprints in creation. There's many others. So we saw it in the blood and we see it in the universe, in the earth's axial precession and in the chemistry of iron and also in the chemist and also in the anatomy of your body, of your skeleton structure. You have 206 bones. Your vertebrae has 26 bones. Your backbone. Your skull has 26 bones. So if you look it up, some, some places they'll say your skull has 28, uh, but if they fuse together into 26. Same thing with your vertebrae. Most babies are born with 33. And then as you grow, they become 26. They fuse together. So your, your skull is 26. Your spinal cord is 26. Your, not the spinal cord. The vertebrae is 26. Uh, each of your feet has 26 bones. So there's this constant, these patterns of 26, even in your bones, and you have 206 bones total, and so on and so on. There's patterns of 26 everywhere. Even in DNA, you see it. Not quite like 20, it's a whole thing there with 26 angstroms and whatever. It's everywhere. There's patterns of 26 all over the place. So God put that in. And we mentioned Adam being Aleph Dam. Aleph represents God. Aleph is also 26 because if you split the way that each letter in hebrew is written each letter in hebrew is actually just a combination or modification of three root letters a yud a vav or a kaf and every letter is made up of either a yud which is like a point a vav which is a line or a kaf which is like a square so aleph is made of the way you draw an aleph is a, a vav and two yuds one above and one below which itself is 26 right the yud is 10 and 10 and vav is 6 is 26. So aleph is one. It represents oneness. It represents the one God. And the word aleph, aluf, means a master, a chief. God being the aluf, the master of the universe. Right? And that's why the Torah doesn't start with an aleph, by the way. It's like a classic rabbinic question. If the Torah is like everything from the beginning, why does it start not start with an aleph? The Torah starts with a bet. Bereshit. Why? Should have started with an Aleph. No, because Aleph already existed. There was already God. And everything starts with Bereshit, with Bet, with Bait. Bet means Bait. It's the, the house that he created, the universe that he created as a dwelling place for his godliness. So Aleph itself is 26. And each letter in Hebrew can be broken apart and has so much meaning itself. Okay, let's get to Purim. We have a little bit of time left. Purim is tomorrow. So let's see what is the deeper meaning behind Purim. Because it seems like just like a, this like fun festival, you know, party, party time, drink and put on masks, like a masquerade, right? So we sometimes forget about the deeper meaning behind it. And Mechayev, uh, we know this from the Gemara. Everybody knows this. Even if they don't know the Gemara, they know this. Uh, that in, on Purim, everybody needs to get drunk or you can argue what that exactly means drunk, but maybe some, some, you have to get to the point where you are 
We all heard this term until you don't know the difference between that you don't know the difference between Haman is cursed and Mordechai is blessed. We've all heard this before. Now, what, what we usually fail to, like I've never heard before, growing up you always hear this, and the first thing that you think about is you've got to be really smashed to not know the difference between Haman is cursed and Mordechai is blessed. Like how drunk do you really need to be to not be able to differentiate between the great villain and the great hero? They couldn't be more distinct. So what were the sages saying? Did they really want us to get so smashed? Probably not. It's technically halakhically forbidden for a Jew to even get that smashed. You're not allowed to. A Jew is not allowed to be so drunk, by the way. And you're not allowed to lose control of yourself. It is forbidden. You're allowed to drink a little bit. You're allowed to get a little relaxed, tipsy. That's it. It is forbidden to go beyond that. You cannot lose yourself. So they couldn't be saying literally this, that you have to get so drunk that you can't tell the difference between Haman and Mordechai. So what do they really mean? They were mathematical people. The difference between Haru Haman the gematria of Arur Aman is 502, if you add it up. And the gematria of Baruch Mordechai is also 502. The same numerical value. So now read that again. You have to be besume bepuria. You have to be, get to the point where ad until you don't know the difference between Arur Aman and Baruch Mordechai. Do you see what was actually meant here? You have to be reading the Megillah, you have to get to the point where you see that there is no difference between Arur Aman and Baruch Mordechai. The Gimatria difference. Mathematically, it's the same value. See that? See what they were getting at? You're supposed to look deeper into the Megillah. You're supposed to uncover its secrets. That's the idea. Go deeper into the text. And there's a lot of math. You've probably heard before this idea of Nichnas Yain Yatsasod. That's like a famous Gimatria. That when a person drinks wine, nichnas yain, yatsasod. That when a person drinks wine, their secrets come out. The gematria of yain is 70, and the gematria of sod is also 70. So nichnas yain, yatsasod. Person drinks wine they tend to spill their secrets, right? They lose their, they're kind of like, alcohol has this effect that it shuts things off in your brain. It shuts off your control mechanisms. So, when a person drinks wine, secrets come out. But there's a deeper meaning to that, that you're supposed to drink just a little bit to like kind of shut off your, some of those things that are blocking you in your head just so that you can see deeper into the text. That's the real meaning here. And there's a lot of mathematical <clears throat> formulas and number and uh, equivalences in the Megillah. So another famous one is that Mordechai, the Gimatri of Mordechai, 274, is equal to Bavel and Amalek. So being the villain, the villain of the of the Purim story is Haman, who is an Amalekite. He is Amalek, and this is taking place in Bavel, in Shushana Bira, in Susa, in the in this old. It's it's Persia now. But a few decades earlier, it was Babylon. 
it was during this the Babylonian captivity that this is taking place. So Mordechai 274 is able to defeat Babel and Amalek, these, the, these twin forces that are trying to oppress the Jews. And furthermore, that equals Rachel and Leah. Why? Because where did Mordechai's, where did the Jewish people's strength come from to win in this story? The key thing about Purim is that Purim represents the real formation of the Jewish people, of Yehudim. Why? Because until Purim, every Jew was not really a Jew. He was an Israelite that was more affiliated with his tribe. I'm from the tribe of Reuben. I'm from the tribe of Shimon. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Only when they were all in exile did they all melt together and there weren't no tribes anymore. Everybody kind of forgot their ancestral tribal history and everybody just became Yehudim. So this is where Jew really starts. Until then, there weren't Jews. There weren't Yehudim. Yehudim meant a person from the tribe of Judah only. After Purim, everybody's a Yehudi. That's what it says about Mordechai, that he's an Ishiyamini. He's from really from the tribe of Benjamin, but he's Mordechai HaYehudi. He's Mordechai the Jew, even though he's not from Yehuda, he's from Benjamin. Do you see what's happening here? The whole Purim story is about the formation of the Jewish people, really Jews as we know it not Israelites anymore with their own tribes that are always kind of like separated and fighting each other, but as one nation, that all the children of Rachel and the children of Leah, these 12 tribes have now unified into one people. That's the beauty of Purim. It's about the unity of the Jewish people. That's where our strength comes from. That's where we can overcome all the Hamans and Hitlers from that unity. So Mordechai also represents that unity of the children of Rachel and the children of Leah. He's an Ishiyamini, a Benjaminite, which is a descendant of Rachel, the son of Rachel, Benjamin. And he's an Ishiyahudi. He is a Jew. Yehuda comes from Leah. So he represents the fusion of all the tribes coming together. And that gives him the strength to overcome the evil. In the same way that we said Mashiach defeats Nachat. They have a numerical equivalence. Same thing here, the numerical equivalence that Mordechai is able to defeat the forces of Babel and Amalek, these destructive forces. And uh, another thing for Purim is that there's a secret hero in the story that we often don't give enough attention to. It says that um, in the Purim story, there was a man named Hatach. Hatach is the one that takes care of Esther in the palace and he's the one that is the com communicates between her and Mordechai without Hatach he was her man in the palace he was able to send her messages to Mordechai bring them back he was communicating and taking care of her so Hatach plays a really important role but we don't think about him and it says in the Gemara that that Hatach is Daniel the prophet Daniel there's the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel. So he was, he was called Hatach because he used to be the great, the minister, and then Haman took over and whatever. So uh, he was no longer in a high position at that time, but he was still there in the palace. So Hatach and Daniel are the same person. 
And Hatach plays this really quiet role, the secret role in helping to defeat Haman. Without him, this wouldn't have happened. The story wouldn't have happened. And uh, the gematria of Daniel and Haman are also equivalent. They're both 95. Again, that same pattern of two forces of having the same value, like Mashiach being able to neutralize the Nachash and Mordechai being able to neutralize Babel and Amalek and Daniel being able to neutralize Haman. These two ministers, Daniel was the previous prime minister in Babel in Persia. And then Haman becomes the new prime minister. Same values. Okay, we're going to finish with just bringing it back to where we started in part one with the Sfirot and show you a few, few more Kabbalah codes. If you remember, the first of the Sfirot is Keter. Keter is the start of it all. It's the divine will. It represents Ratzon, God's will. The Gimatri of Keter is 620. It, Kaf is 20. Taf is 400, Reish is 200, so 620 altogether. 620, you know, represents all the commandments of the Torah. We say that we have Tariyag Mitzvot, 613 commandments, but then there's also seven additional commandments that were that came a bit later, like Megillat Estel. Like we have this mitzvah to read the to hear the Megillah, to read the Megillah. It couldn't have been in the Torah because it happened way after the Torah's events, right? But it is considered a full mitzvah like any other Torah mitzvah. Same thing with lighting Shabbat candles. So we have seven additional mitzvahs in addition to the Torah 613. So altogether you have 620 mitzvot, all coming from God's will, right? God's initial will to give the Torah, to rectify the universe, Keter 620. 620 mitzvot. And what's amazing is, again, going back to counting the letters in the Torah, in the text of the Ten Commandments in the Torah, if you count how many letters there are that make up that text, there are 620 letters. To represent the fact that the Ten Commandments actually contain within them all 620 commandments. Those were like 10 headings, right? At Mount Sinai, God couldn't have been God couldn't have given them all 620 because then they would have been there for way too long. So he did a short version. He gave them like the 10 headings and all the 620 commandments fit under those 10, but they were all encoded in the 10. And so the 10 commandments themselves, the number of letters in the 10 commandments is 620. We talked about 137 being Kabbalah. Kabbalah is the sum of Chochmah and Nevoah. Chochmah is wisdom, Nevoah is prophecy. So how do we get this wisdom of Kabbalah? It comes from wisdom and prophecy. It's wisdom with some divine inspiration. It's talking about Chochmah here, the second sphera that we have. So Kabbalah itself, 137, is, has these two branches of Chochmah and Nevoah. And in Kabbalistic texts, the acronym for that is Chen. Chochmah, Nevoah, Chen. In Megillat Esther, that term comes up a lot. That Esther had Chen v'chesed, Chen. You see, notice tomorrow when you're reading the Megillah, pay attention to that. The term Chen, it's a code word for Chochmah and Nevoah. So think about that. And Chesed, we think of chesed over here, chesed 
as the place of love. We talked about chesed being love and kindness, positive energy. And chesed has a value of 72. And you'll find in mystical texts that they always talk about three levels of chesed. There's always three levels of chesed, three types of chesed, three types of love. Three types of love. In philosophical texts as well, you have three types of love. Anybody know what the three types of love are? Three forms of love? You know what they are. We all know what they are. Just putting them into the right terms. There's love for, you have love for yourself. That's probably the biggest one, right? Everybody loves, you love yourself. Everybody does. And then you have love for your fellow, other people. And then you have love for God. Three types of love. So loving yourself, you know, in ancient Greek times, that would be called eros. It's the root of the word erotic or whatever. Eros is self-love, right? It's just, it's like lust. It's like taking, just making yourself feel good. It's a very low level of love. And then above that, you have love for your fellow, which is philios, like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Philio means love. Delphi means brother. Philadelphia literally means the city of brotherly love. It's not just a tagline. Literally, that's what the name means. So philios means love for your another person. And then the highest form of love in Greek was called agape, the love for God. It's transcendent love. You know? So you have three levels of love, three forms of love. And love itself comes out of, love requires two things. It's like a connection between two. So it can be love between you and God. It could be love between you and another person. It could be love between your soul and your body. The lowest level of love is your soul loving your body and giving it bodily pleasures. So it always requires two. So if you take Ava, which is 13, and when you double that, because love goes both ways, you have 26, right, where there's that loving connection. If love goes one way, it's not going to work. Right? They have to go together. So... If you love a person, but they don't love you back, that's only half of the, the equation. That's not going to work. If the soul loves the body, but the body doesn't love the soul, that's also not going to work. Right? When you have people who abuse their body or vice versa, like, you, you have to have a balance between body and soul. The body and soul also have to love each other in balance. So it has to go both ways. So when you have 13 and 13 going both ways, you have 26. That's a nice godly union. That's yud hey vav hey. And there's three levels. So when you have three, when you fulfill all three levels, when you have balance in your own love of body and soul, love of you and the people around you, love of you and God, you've completed all the levels of chesed. So chesed is 72. That's where that number really comes from. On a mathematical level, why is chesed 72? Because it's three levels of love. Fulfilling all the levels. And we talked about last time about Shvirata Kelim, about the breaking, the shattering of the vessels. And we said that the vessels shattered into 288 pieces, which itself comes from the word in the Torah, Veruach Elohim Merachefet, Merachefet, the Spirit of God was hovering over. And the word Merachefet splits into Metrapach, that the, the, the death of, the destruction of, the vessels into 288 pieces. So another place where this comes from, this number 288, we mentioned last time that the reason that the vessels shattered is because there was an imbalance between chesed and gvura. 
between that positive and negative, between love and kindness and between severity and judgment. There was an imbalance, and so the vessels shattered. So you see that again mathematically in that chesed and gvura, the sum of the two, gvura is 216. And there's a reason for that as well, of course, why gvura is 216. But together, they make 288. And it's always called rapach. And it's not a coincidence that it's also perach. Perach is a flower. It brings us back to the flower, to the perfect symmetry, the design of the flower and the Fibonacci sequence, the golden ratio, because a flower in Judaism and in general represents perfect order. Actually, the Zohar, the Zohar, which is the main textbook of Kabbalah, not the only one, but it actually begins with a discourse on the rose, on a flower, on a rose. It's translated as rose on a Shoshana, on a flower, because a flower represents order. Flowers represent making order out of disorder. And we said, I think throughout, in part one and part two and part three, that our purpose as Jews is to create order in the universe. Perfect the universe, to, to purify the universe, to put everything in its place, to get rid of the chaos, the tohu vavo, and to make order out of disorder. That's our purpose. And the flower is the most perfect symbol of that. Because when you think about what a flower is, what is a flower? Where does it come from? What does it do? like? It comes, think about what a flower represents. It comes out of the ground. It comes from dead, decaying matter. From, you know, you know what we use to fertilize soil. It comes from the most like manure, like I don't want to say any more uh, words. So it comes from just total death and disorder. And it grows into, it takes all those molecules in the soil and it creates beautiful order perfect order and it doesn't need anything from anybody the flower right it doesn't need to consume other things it takes energy from the sun takes water from the roots it grows by itself it creates order it is giving doesn't take anything doesn't require anything it is a giving thing that is creating order out of disorder so the flower is the symbol of this, of, of really our mission of creating order out of disorder. That's why it's a perach. Perach is 288, because it represents the tikkun of the rapach, of the 288 broken vessels. Creating order out of disorder, creating beauty out of, not beauty, out of ugliness. Bringing life out of death. You know, it's like resurrect, seeing plants every spring, flowers blooming. Think of the feeling behind that. It's like resurrection, life out of death. It's beautiful. So that's the idea of the flower and of rectification of tikkun, which is the whole purpose of Kabbalah at the end of, of the day, to put all the pieces in their place, all the pieces, the 288 pieces, and all the fragments, little nitzotzot, the little sparks everywhere, to find them, to purify them, to bring them back to their place in heaven, to rectify ourselves the people around us. That's what Kabbalah is all about at the end of the day. All the meditations and prayers and rituals, it's all about rectification. It's about, as we said at the beginning, seeing the oneness in the universe. And the numerology is part of that. Seeing how everything reduces to numbers, how everything connects mathematically. Just like in science, how we can define everything mathematically. And in Torah as well, you can define everything mathematically. So that's what it all comes down to. And that's it for this. Happy to take questions. Thank you for listening.